and welcome back to Cooking the Books with me, Jilly Smith, the podcast which takes us through four food moments from the books of our favourite food writers. It's about all of life through the prism of food. And this week, we're talking to one of Britain's most respected and original voices in food, Elizabeth Luard. And because I carry a sketchbook into a market, I can ask questions. I don't need the language. I can just say, you know, what do you do with this? Do you put an onion in? I can draw an onion. And they'll say yes. A successful botanical artist and broadcaster, her many books have brought us stories of her family life in Andalusia in the 1960s, set among the history, landscapes and culture of Europe. We're concentrating on just one today, European Peasant Cookery, which was first published in 1986 and reprinted again at Christmas. It's seen as one of the most important books in modern British food writing. The recipes tell much more than how to boil a lobster or salt a cod. They remind us of a way of life that Europeans have been living for centuries. I asked her to paint a picture for me, that life in Andalusia in the 60s on a sunny Thursday morning in February. A big white house in a hill, nothing to be seen except cork trees, a view of Africa, the Straits of Gibraltar down below. Uh, It's probably, if we're February, we've got the first Narcissus. And at that point, I will have had four children by the end of the 60s, but not at the beginning. And um, the birds would start nesting. We had a pig that was um, fed from kitchen straps in the bottom of the garden. And so I keep an eye on that. We had a donkey um, who tipped the children off, so it wasn't particularly good for going to school, but um, was always present and would shout when I left the um, the kitchen door and sometimes got out and chased the children round the kitchen table and the kitchen table is in my flat now in London. Which we've just eaten our lovely lunch from. <laughs> Indeed. How absolutely gorgeous. I mean, it sounds, of course, a totally different life for you. Was it a completely different way of living for you? Or was there some element of the kind of the wild in you that just found a new home in a different country? Well, I was a diplomatic stepchild. So I had lived in South America and I was pretty used to the idea of people living in the way that people were living in Andalusia at that time, which was, it wasn't um, tourist at all. It was just a place where um, people ran, they had goats, you know, it was quite self-sufficient. So the idea that that was a proper way to live didn't, um, didn't faze me. The alien place was probably London. The Latins love children. They're really lovely. You know, they don't smack their fingers when they try and eat a grape. They say, come along, try it. So the idea that um, that was a way of life that suited people who had children, as opposed to a London life, which was, oh, King's Road, you know. I had my Mary Quant short skirt and my Vidal Sassoon haircut, and uh, I was working at Private Eye in, in the very beginning. So I had a sort of time which was pretty urban, which central London yeah and um but when I had children it seemed much more appropriate to kind of pull right back and then go back to a place I understood and I was bilingual so it and also French is the diplomatic language so I had two languages it never never really occurred to me that that would be any difficulty at all (laughs) and it wasn't in many ways was it I mean you you know let's talk a little bit about the peasant cookery that you write about and which has become an absolute classic Uh, it first came out in 1986 and I mean Tom Parker Bowles calls it one of the great cookbooks of all time you've become known as one of the grand dames of British (laughs) cookery because of that contribution and you know it's interesting to, to compare you with Elizabeth David 
Hayden and, and Jane Grigson as people who travelled at a particular time and showed a kind of reflection, if you like, of what British food was like in comparison to these great adventures elsewhere. <laughs> I mean, w- when you were writing the book for the first time, mm. how aware of, were you of making this massive contribution to British food? I wasn't really aware of it at all. I could just see that um, from reading and from looking at the way that people lived, I could see there was a level of um, the basic, not town cooking, but rural cooking, that you could look out of your window and you were looking after your garden, you, you had um, uh, domestic animals, you, were some, you had some kind of a way of making money, and that this was common. Money didn't matter, it was a crop. So if it failed, you had other ways of dealing with it. And that this was something that underpinned everywhere. It underpinned the whole of Europe, because I didn't go beyond Europe. Mm. And then town cooking, the poor eat differently. And it's not so much poor cooking. Poor people, they think it's potatoes, but no, it's not. It's, it's seasonal. Mm-hmm. Changes um, depending on what you can grow or what you can fish. You very often had access. And, that, and then the town people had access to all sorts of other things. So if we're talking about Britain, England, I went to school in the Malvern Hills. And the food was, um, it was still rationing. You know, we still mm-hmm. sort of won sugar every two weeks or something like that. And it was pretty horrible because we, um, I mean, famously, we lost our, um, we lost our peasant mm-hmm. level. Yeah. And don't think peasant is a respectable thing to be. You know, it's a, it's a, a term of abuse as much yeah. as anything, you know, behaving like a, a loutish peasant or whatever, which is not true in France, where paysan, yeah. um, de Gaulle addressed his nation as... Paysan, mm-hmm. so it's also countrymen. Same is true in, in Italy, same is true in, in, in Spain. Mm. So the idea that was a respectable thing to do was absolutely ingrained in what I understood. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about that terminology. I mean, as you say, it is pejorative in mm. this country. The European traditions have three different levels, don't they? The paysan, as you, as you call it. What, what is it in um, in Spanish? A campesino. That's right. <laughs> the country people. Yeah, the people, people of it, the... It's, it's not, yeah, exactly. Of the fields. Yeah. Then you've got the bourgeois, which are the townspeople. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. you've got haute cuisine, which comes from the courts. Yeah, palace cooking. And that's true of, of modern restaurants too. And um, rarity, imports, caviar... You know, something like a truffle. But a truffle, on the other hand, is found by the poor for sale to the rich. So, you know, there's, a, there's an exchange. And um, it, all of those subtleties that you, if you grow up with them, which in Uruguay, although I was a diplomatic, the child of a diplomatic family, I was the wrong side because my father was killed in the war. So I was always in the kitchen. So I'd go home with the cook at, at the weekends so there were chickens under the table and there was a tin roof and I slept on an old bus seat, you know, or I'd go down to the harbour. My brother and I would go and fish for, for beautiful little silver fish that we'd take back and then somebody would cook for us. Yeah. And then I learned to cook for that. And, and that is self-sufficiency and, 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 and resilience. And these are skills that are to be admired. And God, we need them right now. Um, but just going back 
back to that idea of these different levels of class, ultimately. And that haute cuisine is very reflective of of the way that the French see some kinds of food, but they don't dismiss the paysan. No, no, not at all. Nor do the Italians and nor do the Spanish. You go there. For instance, in Puglia, you'll go to Puglia for the country cooking. You're not looking for posh cooking. And is that because of those skills, the resilience and the, 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 the ability to make something from nothing? Where does that respect come from? I think it comes from an understanding of landscape, of where you are, of what your trade routes are, of um, store cupboard, the fact that you understand you know, how to stock the store cupboard against the winter, and also um, a very strong um, feeling that if you're a, a farmer in the countryside, that you have to protect your store cupboard. So that's, you know, you don't protect anything else except that. And if it goes wrong, or the harvest's bad, or the soldiers come, um, you can't just go down to the shop. You have to wait till next year. You have to start the whole cycle of again. And that is, that is something that town folk don't have to do. Yeah. They've got a great grain store. Or they've got, you know, they've got stocks and the poor eat the bits the rich don't want to eat. Whereas, just to go back to Puglia, um, I had a conversation with somebody, my my neighbour at dinner, and I said, um, do the rich eat the same as the poor? And my neighbour said, yes, of course, they just eat more of it. (laughs) So attitudes about, you know, what makes you grand and what doesn't is um, we have a hierarchy in the UK, which is reflected in our class system, of course. The fact that the enclosures did for our peasant community and we were the first to industrialise. So people went to the towns and then they lost that connection. Yeah. So if and some just, just to explain to if anybody doesn't know the Enclosures Act, so it was at seventeen seventy six or somewhere yeah, around, around that. Quite, quite. So, you know, the Enclosures Act mm-hmm. kind of did away with that Jack and Bean, the Beanstalk living, where everybody had at least one or two acres of land and a cow, and they were self sufficient. Um, and of course, with the Industrial Revolution, people were driven to the the towns and lost the connection with food in this country didn't happen throughout Europe. I'm constantly fascinated by why that was. Having lived so close to the land in in France and Spain, do you understand why? The the Code Napoleon. The Code Napoleon means that you can't leave, it it doesn't, it's not primogenitor. So the eldest son doesn't get everything. You can't do that. So if you go to an area of France or of Spain, the ownership of the land, and in Italy particularly, the ownership of the land is complicated. A family, maybe half a dozen aunts and two sisters and a cousin and everything, will own one quite small bit of land, and then compare it, which would not support a family like that. So um, the people in the town, who are the ones who actually are not working the land, have a connection with the land. And then maybe one person is delegated to go and farm or grow olives or do whatever it is that's regionally appropriate but the people in the town have a connection because they all own a bit of him so um, you'll find people going home to help with the olive harvest or plant potatoes or you know do whatever the seasonal um, task dictates and that is a very different attitude we never got that it just went straight into the big landowning class Mm. and that that was the villages were 
probably tied labour, yeah. maybe had a bit of garden to grow things, but there wasn't the self-sufficiency. That that just we didn't we didn't go that way. Absolutely fascinating. Tell tell me about the markets. Now we your book opens in the markets. You so much of the kind of the 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 chat goes on at the market. The the trading of skills between buyer and seller goes on at the market. The the respect towards the seller from the customers happens at the market. How important was the market for you in settling? Oh, very important. And also the fact that I had children was very important because. Um, Parents would take the children, usually a Saturday market, so the children weren't in school. And um, there was a sort of community of children who would know where the other one was. And when you joined the queue, people would come backwards and forwards, but they would also advise you on, no, don't do that one, you know, or, oh, no, he's no good. You you learnt to recognise if the octopus had been chilled or I would see people um, putting their finger into the brine in the sardine box, which is, you know, very popular, cheap fish and, you know, really fresh. And if you taste the brine, so finger in the brine, taste it. If it was too salty, that would mean that the um, the ship had been out too long and that the sardines would not be as fresh. So the less briny, the fresher. You learnt that kind of thing. You learnt, um, for instance, that in the winter, do you know spider crabs? They're yeah. just, they look wonderful yeah. and they look completely impossible. What would you do with this creature? Well, spider crabs in the winter now, which would be a thing that I would find in the market right now in Algeciras or Tarifa, um, much smaller. But that was my, it was a good market because a lot of fish. And um, you knew the spider crabs would be in, in quantity and cheap, because the spiders would take refuge from storms. And there were a lot of storms in the Mediterranean in the winter. One, doesn't, one thinks of this sort of blue calm, not a bit of it, you know, very much dictated. Yeah. So all that kind of backstory that everybody knew and would kind of come into the middle of. Don't you know that? Yeah. You know, when I was um, making chorizo with our pig, and I will not go into the whole process of getting the pig to the point where it was suitable for the chorizo, um, it was a communal effort. I was vulnerable because I had children, so people would always keep an eye on me and say, OK, you don't know what to do that. Plant garlic under the lemon tree, you know, because then you won't get black fly. There was a whole stuff that everybody knew that in spite of the fact that I lived in a bigger house, I had um, electricity and not everybody did. I had, um, oh, various bits of equipment that, you know, were admired and people would come and say, oh, yeah, what do you do with that? And But when it came to doing these things... But didn't my mother teach me anything? And I thought, um, no, (laughs) she probably didn't. (laughs) So that kind of attitude of an exchange, it didn't matter that, um, you know, if I had a posher car or anything. It was just that I was obviously needed instruction. Yeah. And it it takes a village to raise a child and uh, And a pig and a pig (laughs) and a woman who brings their entire family ever from from uh, from England. Mm. And that is what you pepper the whole book with. It's full of folklore and anecdotes and stuff that you've picked up along the way. So it's much, much, much more than recipes. However, it is probably the most comprehensive encyclopedia of ingredients. I mean, most of them Mm. European Mm. ingredients Mm. um, Mm. from those particular places. But actually, if you want to salt a cod or if you want to boil a lobster, it it is a a fantastic resource even now since 1986. I mean, what was your intention when you first 
wrote the proposal to sell to a publisher or did you or maybe you just wrote it anyway no i did i, I did a proposal because i needed the money to go to the places i didn't know about right. however i had done all my life with children and without as a child so it wasn't as if i was coming into something i didn't know something about um i understood the importance of landscape of latitude of whether you were up a mountain or down a hill or what you know all of that and because i was um a botanical painter which i used to do for q and i was a bird painter very respectable on the wall tryon gallery in london so um i had a way of looking at um a landscape which was both in detail and in mm. in general mm. and i could see that there were no boundaries with peasant cookery mm. that people were applying the same not the same set of skills but the same thinking the same idea of how you how you actually lived off the land it didn't mean that you lived off the land completely most people had a um some way of earning extra worked on the roads drove the school bus you know there was a whole or took jobs with other people everybody helped each other mm. um in spain the cash money um was from running pigs wild pigs the ibericos mm. there were no that was the only pig that was there and our pig was an iberico um through the corcos so the cork trees surrounding us had three crops they had the cork which could be sold every 7 years you could strip this thing that looked like a lady's glove it was extraordinary um and then that went off to the, for the cork the sherry makers of herez who had a you know and then there was the charcoal and the charcoal burning was probably 2 weeks out in the forest and um for that the baker there was a local baker who used bread which was milled by a donkey you know um the wheat was milled um he would bake uh, i think it's probably a 5 kilo loaf which was probably about as i don't know as long as your hand to your elbow mm-hmm. and didn't go stale it was quite dense textured and that was a traveling loaf and when i so that was um the the whole the whole idea of the community had its reference points you can imagine that nothing was it wasn't just a thing of okay that's cooking yeah. okay that's farming or that's um you know trading in the market the life. whole thing was absolutely intermingled yeah um you didn't have enough eggs to take to the marketplace yourself but there was a woman called a recorrera who would come round all the farms collect the eggs go and then buy you the salt and the needles or whatever it was that you needed and then come back again mm. so um it was a community supporting itself yeah. but the life was very hard yeah. so when an opportunity came and algeciras which was the local port began to grow and it got factories and the factories paid well and suburbs um began to be built and in the suburbs there was running water and there was you know all sorts of things there was electricity there was television there were you know there were places that you could go and eat tapas and you know talk to people so that was why the country you know the little farmsteads emptied out mm. because the the work was really hard i didn't dare tell anybody what my age was because the equivalent would look 
10 years older than me because the life's so hard. So it's entirely, um, entirely, you know, logical that you wouldn't want to do that. Yeah. You would want to go um, to somewhere where life was easier. Which is, of course, happening all the way through yeah. the yeah. world, but yeah. particularly through Europe. And it, it, it is destroying a lot of the food culture there. Um, I mean, one of the things that I came across at one of the, the big conferences I went to when I was working at the at Compassion and World Farming, there were some uh, Spanish uh, campaigners there talking about the industrialization of pork and yeah. particularly Iberico pork and jamon yeah. because you don't know where it's coming from anymore. I mean, obviously, mm. with the most mm. beautiful uh, Serrano ham. ham or whatever, mm. you know, you, you can tell from the texture. But it, you, if you don't know where your pig comes from, it can easily destroy the, the the culture without you even knowing. Yeah, you don't know it. actually, unless you know. Somebody showed me a picture of a very expensive Serrano ham that they said was Iberico. Now the Iberico, it's longer and thinner because they're wild creatures, or supposed to be. Yeah, you know, they're now the corralled point. a lot, yeah. and the um, it's called pata negra, which sounds like a black leg, but it's not. It's the the trotter that's black. Mm. And most of them are kind of red, reddish or, you know, they're very distinctive. Yeah. And they intermingle with wild pigs. And you can always tell if an Iberico sow has been hanging around with a wild pig because a wild boar, because the, the piglets are stripy. So all of that kind of... And then, of course, OK, we don't want any stripy pigs. We'll put them all in a corral and we'll bring the, we'll bring the acorns to them. And that's happened a lot. Yeah. So you then get um, an overweight um, Iberico looking like a fat white and it will not be the same. And that they've had a terrible life. I mean, that is the other point of Mm -hmm, peasant mm -hmm, life mm -hmm. is that all animals get a pretty good life until they don't. Yeah. Yeah, as, as it should mm, be. And, mm. you know, when we were talking about using the whole pig, um, you know, I was just thinking about our attitude to waste um not so much these days but actually in the 70s and 80s you know to be able to throw stuff away was a sign that you'd actually kind of were able to that you were no longer that you were rich enough to be able to throw stuff away not so in europe that never caught on did it I wouldn't think it did. I mean, I would, um, when I was traveling um, for, to fill in my gaps, knowing that I had the tools with which to do so, I could go to markets and I could look at landscape. So it's very different. I mean, latitude does dictate. Mm-hmm. Northerners eat meat because there's six months of nothing growing. Yeah. So, you know, then you have to start importing whether it's um, pulse vegetables or greens or whatever it is. But otherwise, you can get everything you need from, um, I don't know, reindeer meat, you know, or that's why we, there's a natural inclination of northerners to eat meat. Yeah. And also, it's, um, I mean, the sort of logic that runs through that means that when you're looking at things or talking to people, you have to, in a way, get into the moment, get into, um, you've got to look and see what is possible to grow. And because of the botanical background, I can tell, yeah. you know, this is going to be good for oats and that will be do, do for barley and no, you wouldn't do lentils there. Yeah. So um, that kind of accumulation of knowledge I already had by the time I started in the book. Yeah. But I can look at it again and think, oh, did I really say that? Maybe not. You know what I mean? But again, it's it's definitely of its time. 
and it was a a reaction to what I was looking at and what I what I knew anyway. Take us, let's go deep into the book now through your food moments. Um, you've chosen, the first one is the paella campesino. Is it campesino or campesino? campesino. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So the paella is, um, it's actually, the Valencians would tell you it's only in Valencia. But I didn't know that when I lived in, um, in the far tip of um, Cadiz, near Cadiz. I did know, though, that it was a Sunday thing and it wasn't... Um, it, it was a different, um, if you went to Malaga, to the seafront, you would get a, a rice with seafood. But in my area, that wasn't true. Um, campesino means it's a countryside paella, mm. which means that um, rather like in Middle East, you go up into mountains to have your picnic. You don't go down to the sea. Why would you do that? Too hot, you know, not not a good idea. The local one, which everybody knew about, and of course I didn't, until my children went to school and came back and said, OK, Ma, this is what happens. And what happens is that you have... Um, the paella pan is a, a Roman design, double-handled, and um, it's a single, more or less a single layer of rice will do it. When you buy a paella pan, they say, how many people... And you say five or seven, always an uneven number, because you will expect um, to have a, a guest, somebody wandering. So there's always an une- uneven number. And a, a, maybe a seven and a nine, you know, that's okay. And then um, that goes on your back or on the back of the Seat 600 with everybody in it. And you go up into the hills and everybody goes and... The dad has a gun, and the mother has um, the children. Who's <laughs> supposed to keep an eye on the children? The children um, will go and wild gather, and everybody does. Auntie wild gathers, and mum wild gathers, and that's how you you learn. And in the hills, um, again, very seasonal. Um, in the spring, like now, you would find wild asparagus. Very easy to find. You know the um, fern that you have at a wedding that, mm-hmm. that yeah. goes, well, that is what goes uh, the, underneath it. The shoots come up and they come up almost overnight. So if you see that furry, prickly fern, look underneath at the right time of year and asparagus will be there. At another time of year, there will be snails. Um, the big ones that we recognize, but also little tiny ones that spend the summers up thistles. So you take a, a bucket and a stick. What else do you take? You take olive oil, rice, salt. That's pretty much it. That's pretty much it. Um, you hope that, um, so that your man with the gun is going to go and get a rabbit. And if it doesn't, you quite often have a hen in the back, an old hen. And that will go in the pot if you haven't got the rabbit. Um, the other possible wild gathering <laughs> will be um, crayfish, and they're really easy to catch. You've got a bit, bit of bacon on a string, and they'll grab it. Your kids must have had... I mean, that is a childhood and a half, isn't it? I mean, do they appreciate it? No, not really. <laughs> you know, oh, God, not, not another story like that, Ma. Uh, and, but on the other hand, my grandchildren in Wales... When I was in Wales, during most of their childhood, we could do exactly the same thing. Yes, of course. But we didn't do the paella because that wasn't appropriate. But we certainly, um, we gathered masses of um, dandelions and wild garlic and, you know, sorrel and all that kind of thing. Yeah. So, um, and also planted potatoes and dug them. Yeah. 
so um and rabbits unfortunately the well not f- unfortunately the neighboring farmer's son grandson had ferrets so rabbits um the rabbit on my kitchen table was very often ferreted because <laughs> i was the only one who would actually um, had actually skin a rabbit and a rabbit in you know they're little wild rabbits and um for a paella they're perfect of course and some of the most sustainable food that you can possibly eat Absolutely. exactly <laughs> your second food moment um your brandad de moru i mean it's salt cod but actually this takes us into the wider environment of this book because it's not just about the stories of you and your yeah. children having a wonderful wonderful time and we're very jealous you do travel enormous distance to find the food of europe yes the um the salt cod was just really interesting because um most of the cod harvest goes to the Lofotens, which is within the um, off the coast of Norway, within the Arctic Circle. Yeah. One forgets that under Roman Catholic Europe, ate fish on Fridays, on Wednesdays, and for forty days in the run up to both Easter and Christmas. So that was they were told to do that by the Roman Catholic Church. And most of the cod in the Middle Ages was salted down in um, Portugal. So that was where the big... Um, it, it's an Atlantic fish. Mm-hmm. And if you go around the Mediterranean, people keep saying, oh, you've got to try this, you know, this bacalao. Mm-hmm. And the bacalao fritters and the bacalao in this and the bacalao in that. And you think, what, what are you talking about? You know, there's no cod. There's everything else in the Mediterranean, but cod is somewhere else. So when I was on my travels, I did two big uh, exploratory swings by, on, on, by car. One of them was um, in the middle of Europe, um, starting in, I think it was Munich, and going right the way down to Istanbul and then back through um, the Balkans and all of that. Same thing, looking in markets. And because I carry a sketchbook um, into a market, I can ask questions. I don't need the language. Yeah. I can just say, you know, what do you do with a, this? Do you put an onion in? I can draw an onion. And they'll say yes. So very quickly, I get a group of children. This is on my own. Nicholas, my husband, who is a writer, he he would always come with me. I was quite surprised because he wasn't a great eater. So anyway, you know, off he comes. And so he, I had sort of, you know, that, that backup, which was great. And um, when we got up to the, the second trip was Norway, and Sweden and Finland. So starting kind of in Bergen, down below. Um, and you suddenly find there's a whole lot of warehouses. And people say that that's the Hansas, the Hansa district. Mm-hmm. And all along the quayside, and also cod um, kept live and sold live. So um, coming down from, from the fishing grounds... Um, kept alive in um, big wooden boxes, very often towed behind. But anyway, whatever practicality. But the Malerfitans cod or Bergen, um, the Hansas established themselves, would you believe, after the Black Death. So all of this kind of history, there's always a logic behind it. And they were a big trading company out of um, Bremen in Germany, and they controlled obvious, um, they controlled the gold trade from Russia and the fur trade. What I hadn't realized was that they also controlled the cod trade. So the Hansas, who were Protestants, Hansa merchants, Hanseatic League, um, they had made an arrangement with the Pope in Rome to have a whole lot of, you know, 
okay, you've got to use the salt cod. They supplied the salt cod. Unfortunately, on the Lurfittons, they dry it. They don't salt it. So it's hung out in great big racks to dry. And that's stockfish. And stockfish was very popular. But what people really liked was the Portuguese version. So the Hanseatic League, very much obliged. There's big salt flats all round caddies and all up, you know, the Algarve. Took all the salt up, gave them to the to the fishermen of the Lurfittons. And um, they did it the way that the Mediterranean likes to eat it. So it was it was an interesting trade. So um, the Brondat de Morue that I'm talking about there is what the French did with the um, the bacalao, the salted cod, um, that was masterminded by the Hanseatic League from Norway, and they put in olive oil and cream. And you think, really? <laughs> you know, so the whole the whole kind of the whole interaction yeah. between all of Europe is comes together yes. in that particular dish. And I don't suppose anybody had ever really thought about it in those ways no, before, because no, you're literally doing that journey to make the links. When the book came out in 1986, had anybody ever thought about cod in this way before? What was the kind of what did people say in the national newspapers about? You know, the way that you were making these links. I don't think they really noticed. I think people just sort of, you know, it's a bit of interesting information. And I, I did get some, you know, remarkably good reviews at that point. Oh. But by the time I went to look at the salt cod trade, I'd spent a lot of time in, in topography in the library, yeah. in a library where you can go into the stacks and then pull out the books. And I learned to look for women writers in the late 19th century, a lot of travel books written then because people were suddenly able to travel and very often they were travelling for their health. So women and men of the cloth, so vicars, were really good sources. Mm -hmm. So I knew that that was what I should be looking for before I got there, Mm -hmm. and I think that's really important. Mm. I was adding on to what I already knew, but I knew knew where to to look. Yeah. Let's go back to the Eastern Med again. I'm fascinated by these markets where you're scribbling pictures of onions. You, you've chosen that as your third food moment, uh, the use of illustration. But you've chosen a particular recipe, the Somali, the Kaldemar and the Dolmades. Mm. I mean, stuff that we, we know, or we certainly know about Dolmades now. Mm. In, at the time that you were writing, this just wasn't in our culinary repertoire in, in this country at all, was it? We may no, have, we may have traveled a little bit to Spain and, and France and picked up some of the recipes that you do have in the book, but actually, this was very, very foreign to us, wasn't it? It probably was. I didn't even think about that, to tell you the truth. I mean, it was something... I wanted to call it European peasant cookery. I didn't want it to be called something tidier and less contentious. I wanted it to be called that, because that's what I wanted to write about. And so I wasn't particularly conscious of what we were doing or weren't doing. But again, um, the, the dolmades, which... It's an Ottoman thing, it's a Turkish thing, it's a Greek thing. Vine leaves enclosing rice. Very handy. We probably could have had that from a, you know, we'd have gone to a Greek restaurant maybe. That I wanted to follow the Ottoman Empire because that dictated habit in a way that um, I didn't go into the Slavs because, again, you have to change. So that was completely arbitrary anyway. 
Ottoman Empire. So we Austrian, and then down through Romania and Bulgaria, and then to Istanbul. Okay, in Istanbul, vine leaves with rice, flavored with whatever. Mm-hmm. You go to um, Greece. Uh, in Turkey, the same thing would be probably with spices. In Greece, it's probably with herbs. So that's a difference. The differences that people can tell, they're not just national. Mm -hmm. They are household to household. You can disapprove of somebody's new wife because you think she puts too much garlic in or olive oil, or it could be something much more subtle than that. So... Um, so it's less about the food from the land on this one. It, the herbs might be the same in one garden to the it's, next. It's the size, but it's, it's the it, way that you wrap it, it's the way you finish it, it's the length of time you cook it. And then after Istanbul, into Romania, um, through Bulgaria, into Romania, all of a sudden you notice that this exactly the same little roll-up with something inside... Um, always rice, always with some, maybe with meat or something different, um, dolmades. Um, and then caldoma is when it switches to cabbage leaf. And it happens sometime around the middle of Romania. You suddenly, and then you say, ah, you know, you're there at the time when there's young cabbage. Oh, you're, and, you know, do you do it with vine leaves? Oh, yes, we do it with vine leaves when the um, vine leaves are young. And then we do it with cabbage when it's fresh in the summer. And then in the winter, we do it with sauerkraut. You Be- do it with salt, with salt you, cabbage. Because you fermented it uh, from because the summer. Because you, you can see you're moving north. So you get to a point where you haven't got vine leaves and it's only cabbage. And then it's... Spring cabbage, summer cabbage, winter cabbage. And then you get to Sweden. And they say, ah, you're writing about peasant cookery. You must try our caldoma or whatever. And you say, really, what's inside it? And they say, rice. Don't you know? And you say, well, tell me, you know, there's no rice in Sweden. You're not growing rice. Where's the rice? Oh, well, it comes from the Black Sea or, you know, plantations around there. And it's historically, you're being told that's peasant food. Now, peasant food is characterized by the fact you don't have to pay for it. So you are using what you can grow. This is something I'm being told is peasant food and is using rice. So it's gone into, that's a sign of affluence, because anything you have to buy is a sign of affluence. And it was because... Um, the Swedes and the Russians, the Rus, from the people, they were the Viking, went across the Baltic. And I think it was Charles Twelfth of Sweden, can't quite remember, um, wasn't live then, in somewhere around the sort of 18th, 16th century, um, got into a quarrel with the Turks, who were in alliance with the Russians, um, came second, had to spend a lot of time in Istanbul, came back to Sweden and brought his creditors with him. And the creditors couldn't live without the rice. The rice came in. And for some trick of history, in it went. And that was told to me was peasant food. So, I mean, work that one out. (laughs) Not sure I can. I can't either. (laughs) Um, Actually, I can. I can see why. Because people will often tell you that they are, they will kind of tell you that their food is grander than it is. Mm -hmm. So um, I I have said, do you ever use anything else? No, we use rice. Do you use 
potato. No, no, not no, none of that. So there is an attitude when you're asking questions mm. that people will tell you the best of themselves. Mm. It's perfectly understandable. Yeah. You know, I'm reading Tolstoy, I'm not reading Playboy, right. you know, whatever it might be. <laughs> so um, th that comes in and you have to be aware of that. And sometimes it's quite difficult to get it... A reality. I would imagine so. I mean, you know, you're covering vast distances here with <laughs> many different languages. You can't begin to understand the cultural nuances in each one of them. I mean, but you did. You bit off a lot more well, than you could it, perhaps chew. But then no, you, it, but, it but you've it perfectly logical. You know, there has to be a reason why they think that rice yeah. is what you put, and that that's a peasant thing. Yeah. So once you got to the point of asking the question. Is all you need to do, yes. really. It's it's their story anyway, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Let's go on to your fourth food <laughs> moment. Um, <laughs> taking you back to the UK, to Wales, mm. where you lived in in the Cardiganshire near Aberystwyth, yeah, in the wilds of Wales, as, mm. as you say. Now, you've chosen Welsh cowl as your fourth food moment. This is a one-pot soup stew, very, very much a peasant dish it's called the cow and it's welsh and people will you you can look at it as in isolation but actually it is no different from what a spaniard a spanish in andalusian is using it's a one pot dish and you put into it with a liquid there is no frying situation beforehand um, there may be now, because that caramelizes and gives a different flavor. And as soon as you get to that sort of appreciation, you will um, move up, as it were, the culinary um, expertise. But it's basically, you wouldn't fry it, you put it in the pot. It's very um, adaptable. In Wales, it will be, sometimes there's meat, sometimes there's not, mm. sometimes a bit of bacon, sometimes there's lamb. Mm. I don't, I've never had it with chicken, I don't know, maybe oh, beef, have. you have yeah, had it with absolutely. chicken. It goes in raw, it goes, makes a broth, and there has to be some form of allium, so it will be leeks, because you can't grow um, onions successfully, the climate's too damp, it'll be carrots and potatoes or whatever. Potatoes interesting because, you know, new world vegetable, so not in till quite late. Um, and then it's a single heat source, which is what we're all being advised to do now. Um, single pot, single heat source, and it's delicious. And it comes always with a big slab of bread and a slice of cheese, a slab of carefully. Have you had it like that? Well, I mean, I have to have, I say that when my grandmother made it for me, it was just the leftovers in a, in okay. a broth. Okay. Um, I mean, Were I you still... a city girl or a my, town girl? No, she was from Llanelli. Um So, you know, it was a town. I mean, it was just the way that they did. It was about using up leftovers. Mm -hmm. We've been talking today about Substack. Um, which, you know, thrills me. You are a content creator. You are just as much of an adventurer in a new world as you ever were, weren't <laughs> you? I mean, you're not phased at all by your Substack, are you? Tell us about how you're using it and why. Well, I really, I've got three posts up now and working on the next lot, basically because it allows me to use the fact that I'm an illustrator in conjunction with um, the fact that I'm a writer and I had, under, when we were all locked up, I did cartoons um, of how to cook things using my sketchbooks, so, which I much enjoyed. And it was also a sort of form of armchair travelling. You know, you can kind of, when you're um, 
if you're writing, you go into that position. But if you're painting, it's something else can go on. You can have a bit of music on, or you know, you can you can alter the mood. And it's a very relaxing situation in a way that writing is not. So it's my original situation. And um, so I did cartoons, and I did about, I've done about 70 of them, believe it or not. Yeah. And they will be um, the paella, or they will be the cowl, or they will be, and I will always have a, an image from my sketchbooks, which I use. I do keep verbal notes, but um, if you look over there, there's a big box and in there, there must be, I don't know, about 100 sketchbooks and probably another lot over there. And they, if I want to go into a place that I've travelled in maybe 40 years ago, I can go straight in there because I have these images. Not always, always onion, but, you know, there will be a view, there'll be a city, there'll be a somebody making um, rolling pasta or, I mean... All the things that interest me mm. will go straight in there. Mm. Or a le leopard on a tree, you know, because I've been on safari in um, Africa. Yeah. And, you know, I can do that. Yeah. I can do it. It's easy. It's fantastic. <laughs> and, you know, you are getting new followers on Substack and yeah. presume, you know, you will keep growing that. And that's a whole new world for you. I mean, do you think you'll ever get bored of it? Have you always got so much more to say? Do you think you'll ever run out of anything to say? I think that the thing is that if I look at um, with a cartoon, um, I love communicating. It's a really good medium for communicating. Nobody's telling me I've only got 570 words. Mm. Nobody's telling me, um, uh, I don't know, you know, the, the sort of things that magazine writers I don't, I'm not within the confines of a book. A book, in a way, has to be, it has to have its own USP. You have to have a, a subject that you're covering. And I've done memoirs, and my Bloomsbury likes memoirs. And But again, you're limited to your, you know, whatever it is, the storyline that you're telling. But with a, it's like a magazine format, Substack, and I can do whatever I like. So I can go off the subject, which I can do very easily. I usually come back round again. But it allows me to use all the tools at my disposal. So the writing and the images together. And I'll sometimes put up images from my sketchbooks. Very raw ones. Yeah. Mm. So the the answer to that question, like, will you ever run out of anything to say, is not in a million years. I think not in a million years. Because basically one thing leads to another, doesn't it? In life, one thing leads to another. That's it. Thanks for listening. Do follow me on Instagram. I'm at Smith, And you can also find a little surprise each week on Substack as I ask my guests for a little extra bite. Elizabeth's is something else. Just search for Jilly Smith on Substack. And I'll see you next week. <laughs>